I think what Microsoft has done with OpenAI, um, you know, I think the people that backed companies like Cohere, they're sort of like a private language version of uh, privately hosted sort of large language model. I think those make a lot of sense because they're going to be like infrastructure plays for this kind of stuff. Now, there's there's still some risk there uh, because AI could, um, well, like those of you that have children know that you don't have to show your kids like 8,000 versions of a coffee cup before they know what a coffee cup is. You show them like three coffee cups and they're like, okay, I got it. That's a coffee cup. And so this idea that you need a lot of data to train AI models, a lot of people believe that some at some point it's going to go away. So, so when that happens, the foundation models could be at risk. You know, right, right now it costs millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars to train these, you know, chat GPT um, and millions of dollars a month to operate. But that might not be the case in a few years. Hello and welcome to Double Take, the Newton Investment Management podcast that brings you the insights of big brains and the questions on the minds of sophisticated investors. I'm Rafe Lewis, head of Newton's specialist research teams, and with me, as always, is Newton investigative research analyst Jack Encarnacio. So before we dive into it, let me just grovel before you, dear listener, and make this humble request. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, leave a nice review, tell a friend we'd be eternally grateful. But now let's get on to it. Today's episode delves into the economics and investment ramifications of artificial intelligence, including the mind-blowing advent of chat GPT. That's very much true. And, and I just want to make sure, Rafe, before we continue, that's really you speaking. This isn't some digital facsimile made of one zeros and semis, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure if this is a positive or a negative, Jack, uh, but it is, in fact, the real Rafe. Okay, well, we'll manage. Uh, let's go with neutral. Anyway, uh, joining us for this discussion is Rob May. Rob is an AI entrepreneur and an AI angel investor who happens to publish a great deal of thoughtful commentary about artificial intelligence, both on his Substack and in a podcast. You can find Rob's written work at investinginai.substack.com. And his audio offering is called the AI Innovators Podcast, which you can find wherever you find Double Take. All right, Rob. Well, I'm pretty much out of breath listing just your bona fides. So let's get this going. Welcome to Double Take. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, this is so terrific, especially because you're a fellow Brookline, Massachusetts resident like I am. Uh, so, you know, that just doesn't happen enough around here. Well, anyway, let's get on to it. So, you know, I think it's safe to say, Rob, that the media and everyone from high school students to their teachers, like my wife, to CEOs and C-suites are pretty much freaking out about chat GPT, uh, which I think everyone's probably heard of by now, and what it could mean for life in general, right? And while all that concern and joy might be warranted, you've been a voice of caution on the business model of generative AI and maybe kind of the investment risks of some of these business models. And by the way, for those of you unfamiliar with that term, ChatGPT is the best example of generative AI because it's artificial intelligence that generates content, you know, be it text, images, audio, and on and on. So Rob, can you give us and our listeners the elevator pitch? You know, why the skepticism? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it. Number one, the way that the AI market has evolved is uh, is a little bit platform-like. And over the last 
18 months, you've seen people start to talk about what they call foundation models. And foundation models were not something that people anticipated three or four years ago. We didn't anticipate that uh, big companies would train one model on lots of data and we would all build on top of those models. It was more thought that people would build models specific to their use cases. And part of the reason is because that in general technology has declining marginal benefits to you know additional features, additional data or whatever. What's actually been interesting with particularly the large language models, but also the image diffusion models as they're called, uh, like Dolly 2 and Stable Diffusion, is that with more data, if you double the amount of data you use, they, they tend to get much, much better. And uh, we, we don't know where that's going to end. It seems logical that it would end at some point. Uh, and so there's a big debate in the community right now about how far that takes us. There's some people that think to solve the problem of creating a truly intelligent AI, you just need more data. Uh, and there's other people that think, no, we've got one or two more cycles here with GPT-4, GPT-5, and and we're going to see these declining marginal returns. So, uh, but so anyway. it's not really ready for prime time in terms of as an investment case yet? Is that what you're saying? We're still extremely early days? Yeah. And so, so what's happened as a result is if you watch the history of technology, when these platforms emerge, it's really dangerous to build on top of them, right? You know, um, it, it, it maybe in the B2B space, it's okay. Like there's some big companies built on the Salesforce APIs, but if you built on the Twitter APIs in the early days, they eventually owned you, right? They cut you off. They competed with you, uh, whatever it was. Uh, you saw a similar thing in in with with Facebook. Uh, you know, LinkedIn's API isn't even really open. You can't get access to it. Uh, so a lot of these consumer facing applications, uh, startups build on these platforms, and the platforms have open APIs because, you know, when when Facebook is new, when Twitter is new, they just don't have the resources to satisfy all the use cases that people want for something that's relatively horizontal as a as a product. And so, um, so I see it as very similarly, which is people look at. Too many entrepreneurs have looked at chat GPT or, you know, GPT-3 on which it's based, which is sort of the underlying language model and said, oh, you know what it should do? It should do this. It should do that. But I, I have heard rumors that the next version of it is going to make a lot of those companies irrelevant. So, so my concern is that the platform ends up competing with you if you are just a sort of like series of light features built on top of the platform, which seem really obvious in the beginning, but uh, but but ultimately get subsumed into the platform itself. That said, you know we we have large firms investing billions into companies um, that are devising these models. Chat GPT among them, uh, mm -hmm. folks saying you know it'll bolster some search engines such that we may be looking at meaningful competition to the Googling we've known for so long. So I wonder how you can square the investments we're hearing about in things like Chat GPT. Uh, with your thought that it's it's hardly prime time for these investments. Yeah, it's a great question, and I would I, I would also say um, so. So I'll give you three points on this. Uh, you know, the first one is uh, VCs make a lot of bad investments, right? I mean, anybody remember Clubhouse from you know two years ago? Like you don't hear about Clubhouse anymore, right? It sort of went under. Um, if you uh, you know you remember Magic Leap, right, which raised it billions before they even launched. So like. I, I don't think that you can say because money's going into something that's, you know, evidence that it's it's going to be um, successful or even should be a space that you invest in. Now, you know, uh, VCs in particular are, um, you know, the earlier stage that it is sort of the less info you have, the more people are chasing just, you know, ideas and momentum and, and stuff like that. 
Um, the second thing that I would say is I think I think it is rational to invest in the foundation models themselves. So like I think what Microsoft has done with OpenAI, um, you know, I think the people that backed companies like Cohere, they're sort of like a private language version of uh, privately hosted sort of large language model. I think those make a lot of sense because they're going to be like infrastructure plays for this kind of stuff. Now there's there's still some risk there uh, because AI could, um, well, like those of you that have children know that you don't have to show your kids like 8,000 versions of a coffee cup before they know what a coffee cup is. You show them like three coffee cups and they're like, okay, I got it, that's a coffee cup. And so this idea that you need a lot of data to train AI models, a lot of people believe that some at some point it's going to go away. So so when that happens, the foundation models could be at risk. You know, right right now it costs millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars to train these, you know, chat GPT um, and millions of dollars a month to operate. But that might not be the case in a few years. You know, we, we can talk about some other reasons why. Uh, so I think there's a lot of risk there. Um that this is uh, very much a transition transitional technology, uh, and and it's it's hard to predict where it's going to play out. So as an investor, like the way I've played this as an angel investor, is I try to avoid anything that looks like a thin layer built on top of a foundation model, mm-hmm. and I try to um, I try to focus on getting exposure to you know like positive uncertainties, like things where I have questions where I'm like, wow, if the market breaks this way or plays out this way these kinds of businesses could be really valuable. So, you know, some areas where I think that could apply with large language models would be areas that have very different uh, industry vernacular, healthcare, finance, uh, things like that, where you can fine tune these generative models on top of it and and apply it to certain use cases. Right, they have their own jargon, yeah. That's really interesting because if I think I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, I guess when smartphones first came out, the value was in the platform and not in the apps you could find on the app store, maybe because they hadn't really reached their full potential and maturity and understanding what they could do with all the data and all that. And it was later on, I guess, when you had, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts and all the companies that, that, you know, built fortunes on being able to reside within the phone. So it sounds like you're saying to me, you'd rather be the smartphone than the app in the early days. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, but but I think in general, you when platforms are new, they lack a lot of functionality. And it's, um, you know, you have to make a bet as an investor about, does it make sense for the platform to do that functionality someday or not? I mean, I saw in, you know, 2013, 2014, when Facebook was in its heyday, and, you know, I just sold my company and started doing some angel investing. There were so many people that were building things like uh, calendar and event kind of stuff, functions that Facebook didn't have yet that made a lot of sense for Facebook to do. And I, you know, I don't think any of those made it. And you saw this wave with Slack bots when Slack came out, right? I mean, can you name a big company that was built on Slack bots? But 2016 and 2017, like Slack bots were all the rage. And, you know, Slack just built most of that functionality internally, you know, over the long term. So those are just some things that that you have to think about. Circling back to something you said, Rob, that I thought was really interesting. You know, one of the tenets I think of AI is more data in, better predictive the AI. And you you were sort of indicating that that might be debunked a bit. I love the coffee cup example, but you know, we've heard we we've talked on Double Take over the years about you know machine visioning, about the 
the camera and radar systems in cars to be able to detect obstacles. And it just seems to hold that the moat is data. The more data you can feed into your AI, the smarter it will be about making those finer tuned decisions. But are you pointing to a world, and maybe it's closer than we realize, where it's almost like the AI gets gets so good that it needs that much less to determine and predict what you want it to do? Yes, exactly. Well, there, there's three ways to think about that argument and and the lack and and the data issue, right? One is there's lots of places, and and, and if you want to look at good areas to invest, there's lots of places where we could apply AI, but we don't have the data sets to do the training. So if you can find a way to get those data sets, or you have the patience to build an interface that collects those data sets for a while, and then you know if you if you can if you can fund a startup for a year to build some kind of tool that collects data as part of a workflow. And then you can, you know, turn that into something like those could be really valuable companies. So, um, so, so that's, that's, so I do think data is a strategic advantage in that sense, but there's two, two trends that are happening that could undermine that. One is you have a whole bunch of new computing architectures that are making their way into the market that have been worked on, started between call it 10 and, and four years ago. Most people don't realize this, but almost all the computing we do is built on what's called a von Neumann computer architecture. It's something that we've used since the 50s. It made sense for certain reasons then, but it's there's lots of other ways to compute. So these chips that are coming out don't compute that way. And as a result, they're faster. They would not be good for databases and web servers and all that, but they're great for running AI systems because those tools work in fundamentally different ways. These chips do things called like uh, spiking neuromorphic. Right. So they work like the brain a little bit more where they have these uh, analog spikes uh, rather than these sort of like digital clock pulses, you know, that, that go in. There's um, there's versions they call an analog crossbar array, which is you can think of like a lattice that's laid down. And you compute by flowing voltage and current around this lattice in certain ways, and it's really, really fast. Uh, and there's you know, there's some other things like that. There's stuff called in-memory compute that people are working on. So. So there's a bunch of chips that are coming, which may lower the price of this, even if the big data stuff stays in play. So to give an example, uh, there, uh, you know, there are companies out there, Untethered, Rain Neuromorphics, um, uh, Cerebras, right, that have, that have built some of these chips, and they can often train the same model for one-tenth. Some of them project to get to one one-hundredth of the speed and the cost, which means, you know, going back to our argument of, do you want to be invested in a foundation model company? Well, if it costs OpenAI, let's say $10 million to train ChatGPT, but suddenly you can do that for $100,000, there's a lot more companies that can do it and compete with their own version, right? Um, back to the big data piece and do you need it? It's a big area of debate, right? What you have to remember is that uh, there's a really good book written by Pedro Domingos called, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking. You guys will have to look it up. It's uh, the, the, it's, it's like the five or six types of AI is, is, is basically what it's about. It's a couple of years old. Um, maybe you guys can like link to it in the podcast notes. But um, but he talks about the fact that like neural networks are the way that we do AI today, but there are other ways you can do symbolic logic processing. You can do Bayesian inference. You can use evolutionary algorithms. These all have pros or cons. This whole wave that started in 2012 and has led through today is, is neural network driven. And neural networks require a lot of data, but like evolutionary algorithms don't. Now they take a lot of time, but probably if you could build some, you know, computers that specialize in that, like you might be able to evolve solutions to things really, really quickly. 
Um, you know, so, sort of it's similar in concept to like reinforcement learning, which you can do with, you know, different types of, of like recurrent neural networks or, or something like that. So, um, so there are methods that we know of that come in and can, and can use less data to find solutions. They have a different set of trade-offs, so they haven't necessarily been practical yet. And so the question is, why aren't more people investing in these? Well, if you think about it, the big companies that have been working on AI, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, I mean, strategy 101 is you lean into your strengths. You lean into the assets that you have that other people don't. So their incentives have been to push AI forward based on using the large data sets that they have that other people don't. Uh, and so I think you will see, because it's resurgence in AI, people solve the small AI problem. And and one more point on that is when it comes to getting to like really building intelligence, we, we don't know if neural networks will get us there, right? If it is possible to build a purely silicon brain that's as smart and self-aware as a human, uh, and there's a big debate about whether that's possible, you know, so that's not the point of this podcast to debate that. But but if it's ever going to happen, we don't see the path to that right now with the current technologies. And it could be that somebody comes up with some like strange recursive algorithm that's really simple and maybe it's a college kid in a graduate class and um, it could not need a lot of data to train. It could work re really fast and learn on its own. Like we we just don't know. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of uncertainty about what this ecosystem, this AI ecosystem is going to look like even in three to five years, let alone in 10 to 20 years. So you have to be really careful as an entrepreneur or investor how you place your bets and what you're betting on. So Rob, though, it sounds like you were saying it might be a safer bet as investors are looking at these kind of new explosive changes in AI, that kind of the hardware of AI might be the place to go. The people who have the edge in the silicon and the, the accompanying software. Is that fair? I think it's a good place to go. Yeah. The problem is there's a whole lot of... Um... There's a whole lot of those companies out there right now. So if I was, you know, if I was a, if I was not a technical specialist in this space and I was going to think about how to play it as an investor, um, well, you're going to have a couple of things, right? Number one, th there's a handful of publicly traded companies, right? Tech companies that are very big in the space. You can buy those um, and that might be valuable. Otherwise, you're going to have to go. Most of it's still happening in private markets. So, so what does that mean? Um, it means you need to get access to those companies somehow through a venture or private equity fund or, or some group like that. And then what I would probably do is I would probably maybe make a sector play. So, so I might look for some kind of opportunity. You know, is there a hardware fund that's going to invest in five of these chips with the likelihood that one of them is the next Intel or NVIDIA? Uh, you know, that could, that could work. Um, the second thing I would look at is I would, uh, I would look at, you know, you can always make the whole like, what's unusual, what's interesting, and take bets on some of that. Uh, and then the third thing I would look at is, I think the best and and maybe safest things to bet on right now are like vertically integrated AI stacks, where somebody is looking at an existing industry, you know, insurance, financial services, um, you know, various types of, of business workflows. And they're like, look, we're going to go in and compete with these other people, but we're going to really change the cost structure and improve the outcome at the same time using AI. But the AI is only maybe 20 to 40% of the solution. So it's not like you're, it's not like your whole business is offering this giant AI model that could go away tomorrow if somebody has a better algorithm. So incremental kind of change powered by AI that has a material change to the cost structure. Exactly. 
Very interesting, Rob. So I'd ask you this. I mean, 2023 in so many ways is seeming to be the year of AI. I mean, we've talked about it for years. It's always been a subject of consideration for investors, but we're probably here today talking to you because of chat GPT and, and, and say what you will about, as we've discussed, kind of the, the limits, the boundaries of, of where this is, is pointing to and what signals it's giving us about how AI will transform markets. But we're here because of chat GPT. So I'd ask you, you know, practically speaking, for everyday stock investors, what would you say changed with the advent of chat GPT? Yeah, it's a great question. So there were two, there were two things that happened uh, just watching this market. You know, uh, GPT-3, which ChatGPT is based on, actually came out in 2020. So it's not, uh, it was a great model and the tech world raved when it came out, but it didn't get much mass media attention. I think what happened was, um, the first step was, OpenAI released a model last summer called Dolly 2, D-A-L-L-E-2, which generated images from text. And that model really captured the imagination of like the sort of the technorati, like the people that bridge tech to, to, you know, more mainstream media kinds of kinds of things. And, um, you know, people are playing around with variants on that stable diffusion, mid journey, some of these tools you might have heard of to generate images of all types. And that was the moment that I think this generative AI concept, which has been around for a couple of years, but really started to bubble up in the consciousness of of everybody. And then, and then I think the media started paying more attention to OpenAI. So when ChatGPT came out, they were riding this previous sort of PR wave, you know, the last six months. Um, the public was more primed for it. So that was part of the reason. But the other thing is that I think the conversational piece of it is really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. When you, if you're going to go play with GPT-3, the underlying model, it's actually a little harder to work with because you have to do what's called prompt engineering, which is you have to have a way to tell the model what you want out of it. And that's an art all to itself. Do you want a poem? What kind of poem? How long? Do you want a haiku? haiku? Does it have to rot? Like, you know, do you want an essay? Do you want a blog post? ChatGPT made the whole format a little more user-friendly. So I would equate it to, you know, there were smartphones before the iPhone. And the iPhone came out with this super intuitive interface that really brought mobile phones to the masses. But you know, you could have gotten a Blackberry before. Um, yeah, there were all kinds of Nokia phones and Motorola phones and all that kind of stuff. And so I think ChatGPT, it's really a user interface innovation on what was an existing open AI model that just made it really easy to play around with. Wow. Well, in a era where content is king and a technology that comes around that can spit out content in a moment's notice. This is definitely something to keep an eye on. Well, Rob May, angel investor, AI thinker, uh, entrepreneur, executive. Thank you so much for joining Double Take. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it.
Newton Investment Management North America LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of the group of affiliated companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton or Newton Investment Management Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein have been, has been obtained by, from third-party sources that are believe, believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. ESG analysis refers to a range of internal and external qualitative and quantitative research. Newton manages a variety of strategies. Whether and how ESG considerations are assessed or integrated into Newton's strategies depends on, on the asset classes and or the particular strategy involved, as well as the research and investment approach of each Newton firm. ESG may not be considered for each individual investment, and where ESG is considered, other attributes of an investment may outweigh ESG considerations when making investment decisions. Analysis of themes may vary de depending on the type of security, investment rationale, and investment strategy. Newton will make investment decisions that are not based on themes and may conclude that other attributes of an investment outweigh the thematic structure the security has been assigned to. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20IJN, in the conduct of investment business. Registered in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as an investment advisor with the Security and Exchange Commission, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisor Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with the National Inst Instrument 31-103 Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with the National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations.